What are you thankful for? I hope by now you realize that this is the Thanksgiving weekend, and I don't know what your Thanksgiving was like. Mine was kind of a blur for the first time in a long time. I know many of you have gone through that empty empty nest stage, and you don't have your kids home. For the first time in several months, all of my kids were, well, they weren't really back. They were up in the Twin Cities. We met up at my sister's house, and we had a wonderful Thanksgiving, and I was just reminded of the so many things I have to give thanks for. My dad was there. If you don't know, my dad was diagnosed this summer with stage 4 lymphoma. And he was diagnosed in July and started chemo in August and spent about two weeks in the hospital. And if you had asked me in August, I would have said there was no way we were getting another Thanksgiving with him. He didn't feel the best. I asked him how he was doing and he, he said he was okay, but he was there had a chance to be with Abby and Morgan. If you haven't heard, my daughter is engaged. And so we had a chance to, to celebrate that. So we had a chance to, to enjoy family together on Friday. We ran down to this Des Moines where my wife's nephew got married. And just a wonderful chance to be reminded of, of the incredible blessings God gives us with family. But I know it wasn't a great Thanksgiving for everyone. The Gross family met here at church, and Ed drove his wheelchair off the steps, suffered a significant gash to his head, and Andy spent his entire Thanksgiving at the University of Iowa's emergency room. I know that some of you are facing health issues. Some of you are still struggling with with the consequences of COVID and a number of things. I know that many of us have economic, relational Chaos. But what are we thankful for? As I got home uh, fairly late Friday night and jumped into my office and began to really work intensely on this sermon, I have many things to be thankful for, but none more than God himself. I I don't think it's any coincidence that we come to the end of Romans 11 in which Paul pauses with this incredible statement of praise in which he says, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might repay? For from him, And through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. If you've been following along, I have suggested that we are looking at the book of Romans through these four major sections. The first is to talk about how we are justified. And in the first three chapters, two and a half chapters, Paul develops the idea that all of us are in need of justification. And then in the mid part of chapter three, he turns and shares that this justification comes by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. And then as we get to chapter six, Paul is going to suggest that if we have been justified, we will live differently. For the last several weeks, we've been looking at this section beginning in chapter 9 in which Paul discusses what about Israel. And and beginning in the new year, we're going to jump to chapter 12 and see how justified people are to live together. But I would suggest there's another way you could divide it. Maybe the, the way most of Paul's letters are divided is he spends the first half of his letter on doctrine and the second half on duty. 
You can use whatever words you like, but I think it's incredibly interesting that Paul always wants us to understand that before we can act properly, we have to understand how to think properly. In order to do right, we have to understand what right is. And thus Paul takes time to to lay out doctrine and duty, and you can take this outline for pretty much any of his books. But I think it's really interesting, before he goes from doctrine to duty, and he's going to do that, we're going to get there next year in January, the chapter 12 is maybe the most practical chapter in all the book of Romans, maybe in all of the New Testament, as Paul is really going to explore how you and I should live. Before he gets there, he pauses and he gives a doxology. Now, I don't know what you think of when you think of the word doxology. For me, when I was growing up, every single Sunday, we had basically the same format for church. We would have announcements, then uh, two or three songs, then the pastor would get up and give a sermonette before the offering. And then as the offer, as the ushers came forward, every single Sunday we sang, praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him, all creatures here below. Praise him above, ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. The doxology was a part of every worship service. This morning, I don't want to look at that doxology. I want to look at Paul's doxology. Because in these passages, we have this incredible reminder of just how awesome our God is. And before we move from doctrine to duty, before we talk about how we should live in light of what we've learned, I think it really is valuable just to pause for a morning and contemplate our God. If I can go back to the chapter 9, see, I, I fear that sometimes we come to this section beginning in chapter 9 through chapter 11, and it's all kind of theoretical for us because we're not Jews. I mean, I get the doctrinal, and I hope by now you understand there is a benefit in understanding that God is always faithful and that he hasn't abandoned his people. But for Paul, this was intensely personal. His entire family were Jews, likely without faith in Jesus. When he talked about without Jesus there is no salvation, he was talking at least about his friends and quite possibly many members of his family. And the chapter begins with this intense sorrow in which Paul says, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I am in great sorrow and unceasing anguish. How many times in your life have you been in great sorrow and unceasing anguish? That's where Paul was in chapter 9. And he works his way through the relationship Israel has to God. And as he comes to the end of chapter 9, and and as he declares that all Israel will be saved, and he says in regards to the gospel, they are enemies, speaking of Israel for your sake. But as regards to election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that they, that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has co-signed all to disobedience that he may have mercy to all. I, I don't believe Paul is teaching a, a type of universalism. He's not suggesting God will be merciful to everyone. 
He's suggesting that every kind of people, Jews and Gentiles, Romans and barbarians, free and slaves, men and women, rich and poor, and any other category you can imagine, all of us have the privilege of experiencing salvation because of the mercy of God. I hope you never get over that. See, I, I, I fear for me, life often becomes so busy that I get so caught up in the things I should do, the things I want to do, the things that I think need to be done, that sometimes I forget just how kind God has been to me. And before Paul moves on, he's going to give us this incredible doxology. Uh, This is someone else's outline. I really liked it, so I stole it. I hope you don't mind. He's going to share an expression of adoring wonder concerning God, a challenge to human pride before God, a comprehensive truth about God, and a description of eternal glory to God. He begins with a word I don't want you to jump past too quickly. Oh. When was the last time you went, oh? I I fear that because of the modern society we live in, because we are so trained by what we see on television, the things that aren't possibly able to happen, and yet we watch them on television, and they do happen, that it isn't very often we are overwhelmed by wonder by awe, by a moment that just stops you in your tracks and oh is the only word you can get out. Renee and I, for our 20th wedding anniversary, uh, went down to Phoenix. We had never been to Phoenix and we were married in April, so April's a really nice time to be in Phoenix. And so we left our kids with her sister and we flew down to Phoenix and we saw some of the sites in Phoenix. But one of the main reasons is I wanted to go see the Grand Canyon. I, I had never been. And so on one of the days, we got up early, we drove, I don't remember what it is, three or four hours from Phoenix to the Grand Canyon. And I have to admit, as we arrived, I was completely underwhelmed. The, the Grand Canyon is basically this high desert. It's not anything to look at. You drive through the, the Grand Canyon National Park, and it's like, really? And then you walk up, and out of nowhere comes this amazing sight. I, I was tempted not to show pictures because the reality is 2D does not do it justice. As you stand over the edge and you gaze down what looks like a million miles and you look in both directions and it just goes on for as far as you can see and it is 100% indescribable and all you can do is stand there and say, oh, that is amazing. If you've never been, I would encourage you to make a trip down to the Grand Canyon because it is one of those places on earth that words and pictures and video, even if it is 4K, doesn't begin to do it justice. When was the last time you fell on your face contemplating God and said, oh, he is grander than the great, great canyons of the world, the mountains, any sight doesn't begin to do justice. And Paul simply says, oh, the depth. 
Paul is struggling to find adjectives, to find words that he can use to adequately describe the attributes that he's going to share in a minute. And the one he settles on is the word depth. It's an interesting word. It speaks of deep. Yes, I know that isn't very deep. But (laughs) it's also in Greek the word batho, which maybe you've heard of a bathosphere. I don't know if you know where that comes from, but if you go into the the South Pacific, there is a channel in the South Pacific called the Mariana Trench. The far southern edge of that trench is called Challenger's Deep. In 1875, a British boat using basically a line measured the depth at around some 26,000 feet. Over the course of the next several years, more advanced ways of measuring came to the conclusion that it was well over 35,000 feet. To give you an idea, you could dump Mount Everest into the Challenger Deep and it would still have 2,000 feet before it hit the bottom. In 1960, the bathosphere, a submersible, was dropped in the water, and they made a descent from the seashore, sea level, all the way down some 3,600 feet. It took them five hours. Their original plan was to spend several hours on the bottom, but down at that depth, you have a 1,000 times more pressure than you do at sea level. Somebody said that's like having 10 elephants stand on your head. You can see that the glass in the window that they were using to observe cracked, and they decided maybe it isn't wise to stay down here very long. But they reached the deepest place on planet Earth, some seven miles below sea level. And that doesn't begin to describe the depths of God. The depths, Paul's going to share five attributes, and I just want to spend a few moments on them. He begins by saying the depths of the riches of God. We live in a society that is consumed with wealth. We have certain individuals in our society who, because of their financial standing, have concluded that they are better than you. We call them elites. But it's not anything new. We judge people by how large their bank accounts is, and that's just the reality of life. Several years ago, I was driving, and the the top of the hour news came on, and there were two stories that weren't intended to be tied together, but just kind of hit me as we were listening. It was the beginning of a football season, and, and for whatever reason, they were saying that the NFL is the most profitable of all of the sports leagues, and they threw out this figure that at that time, the total value of the NFL was around $36 billion. Now, I'll be honest, I can't understand a million. I certainly can't put 36 billion into any kind of reference. And and so it kind of went over my head. But they ended the story with Forbes' richest people in the world. And at that time, Bill Gates' net worth was right around $60 billion. And then it hit me. He could buy the NFL and still have half of his fortune left. I mean, I don't know how people can get paid 20, 30, 40 million dollars a year to play football, but yet there's somebody who can afford to pay them that. And there's somebody who can afford to buy all of them. Today, the richest person in the world is the owner of Amazon, Jeff Bezos. His, his estimated worth is at about $105 billion. Peanuts. Nothing compared to God. See, God, when I was growing up, we used to sing the the song, God owns the cattle on a thousand hills and the wealth in every mind. I I think that's got a flaw. Because God can make more mines and more cattle. 
In fact, there is absolutely no limit to the wealth of God. I came across this story. William Beebe was a famous naturalist back in the last century and became really good friends with Theodore Roosevelt. And he tells a story that often he and the president would eat supper together. And when supper was done, they would go out and they would lay on their backs and stare in the sky. And they would stare in the sky looking for Cassiopeia. Cassiopeia is this kind of M-shaped constellation. And if you follow the arrow to the leg of Pegasus, if you're a star person, you see what looks like a smudge. It is the only stars you can see with the naked eye that aren't part of the Milky Way. Because that smudge is not a star. It's actually a galaxy. Andromeda. And they would look until finally one of them would find it. And as soon as they found it... Teddy Roosevelt would make the comment that the Andromeda galaxy is over a hundred billion stars, all bigger and brighter than our sun. It goes on for more light years than we can comprehend. And then he would say, I believe I'm small enough now. I can go to bed. (laughs) We live in a universe that I can't begin to describe. And the farther we advance in our understanding, the bigger the universe becomes. In fact, the farther we look into the the galaxies and the universe, the farther that we see it goes. And the reality is, if God wanted to, he could create another universe. None of it limits him. See... I am encouraged because far too often I get caught up with my limited resources and I say, God, how can you? And his answer is, riches aren't a problem. I own everything. Jeff Bezos one day is going to lose everything, either because of his poor business decisions. I don't know if you realize this or not, but all of the top companies in our nation today didn't exist before because all of the ones before have gone bankrupt or ended or got bought by somebody else. Wealth doesn't last in human hands. God owns it all. But Paul's just getting started. He says not only the depths of the riches, but the depths of the wisdom. He's going to use wisdom and knowledge, and sometimes we like to use those interchangeably, and to some degree there is undoubtedly a fair amount of overlap, but knowledge speaks more to the statement of facts. While wisdom has a skill aspect to it. It is the ability to take the logic, the facts that I receive, and do something profitable with it. In, in Daniel chapter 2, Daniel chapter 2 is one of the most intriguing stories in the entire Old Testament. Maybe I just say that because my name is Daniel. I, I don't know. But Daniel 2, after Daniel has been promoted into the, the cabinet of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar, new king, decides he wants to test his wise men. And he has this dream. And so he goes to them and he says to them, I, I want you to interpret my dream. And they say, great, no problem, king. What's the dream? And he says, that's ah, not the way it's going to work this time. The only way I will know that your interpretation is correct is if you can tell me the dream as well. And they say, I I know you're really new at this, king, but that's not the way it works. You tell us the dream, we tell you the interpretation. And he says, I'm sorry, you don't understand how it works. You tell me the dream and the interpretation or I kill you. And they say, we can't do that. No one can do that. And he says, all right, you're all dead. Daniel, as he's being rounded up to be executed, 
says to his executioner, can you at least tell me why I'm being killed? And he explains, and Daniel says, go tell the king that I will tell him the dream and the interpretation. He and his, his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, spend the evening in prayer, and God shares with Daniel the dream and the interpretation. But before he enters the presence of the king, he pauses and he writes, Praise be to the name of God forever and ever. Wisdom and power are his. He changes times and seasons. He sets up kings and he deposes them. He gives wisdom to the wise and to the knowledgeable, to the discerning. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what lies in the darkness and light dwells with him. I thank and praise you, O God of my fathers. You have given me wisdom and power. You have made known to me what we asked of you. You have made known to us the dream of the king. And if you remember the dream, it's that bizarre dream in which Nebuchadnezzar has seen this statue made of these four different surfaces. But the statue is not just some bizarre statue. It's actually a prophecy of what's about to happen over the next six centuries. And Daniel is given the incredible privilege of sharing with Nebuchadnezzar exactly what lies ahead because God knows how to orchestrate all of human events to get people exactly where they need to be. And it's not just that God could give Daniel the interpretation and the dream, but God could orchestrate all of humanity to bring these four great empires to do exactly his bidding. God's wisdom is beyond our ability to grasp. And yet be honest. How many times have you told God what he needs to do? God, it'd really be good if you did this. Am I really willing to, to rest upon his wisdom? But you don't understand that. It isn't going right. It can't go this way. God's ways are the right ways. Because his wisdom is beyond our understanding. But not only his wisdom, he moves on to knowledge. And knowledge is the ability to know certain facts. We live in a time in which knowledge is more readily accessible than any time in history. I I can't tell you how many times we've been uh, seated around the dining table and had an argument. And all someone has to do is pull out their phone and say, Hey, Google! And ask the... It just heard me, sorry. (laughs) And ask the question... And it gives you an answer. But there are some things Google can't tell me. What are you thinking right now? Some of you, I hope, are tracking well with the sermon. Some of you are undoubtedly thinking about the lunch that's going to burn if he doesn't stop talking soon. Many of you have huge plans for the week and are trying to figure out how you're going to get them all done. Google doesn't know any of that. Psalm 139, I wish we had time to spend the rest of the morning in Psalm 139. I'd encourage you to go back and read this psalm. It is one of the most amazing psalms as David pauses and praises God. Oh Lord, you have searched me and know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. I have five children and I can't keep track of them. Imagine if you had seven billion people and could keep track of all of them. God knows where you sit and when you rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. And this is the one that blows my mind. What's your first word tomorrow morning? 
none of us can predict it perfectly. Because it might just be that you're going to plan really hard to say this word and somebody comes and wakes you up before you're ready and you blurt something out you wish you hadn't. God knows exactly what your first word will be after this service, even though you don't. I think one of the most amazing truths I ever heard in seminary was when my theology professor made the statement that God has never learned anything, ever. Because he's always known everything. One of the sermons I listened to uh, quoted a country western song, and I don't even know who the artist is or what the song was, but there's a line in it. Has it ever occurred to you that nothing has occurred to God? He knows everything. Nothing ever catches God by surprise. He knows a word that is on your tongue before you know it. You are hemmed in behind and before you've laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. I can't even begin to understand knowing everything. In fact, it seems as if the more I learn, the more I learn that I don't know as much as I thought I learned. It seems as if knowledge goes on forever, and yet God knows everything. He then moves from there to his judgments and his ways, and the whole idea of what Paul seems to be saying is that God is able to orchestrate all of the events of planet Earth to get it to exactly where he wants it. In fact, The last few weeks, if you've been with us, Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11 are some of the most difficult, some of the deepest, some of the hardest chapters in all the Bible. I I don't understand how Paul in chapter 9 can argue that God is absolutely sovereign. He shows grace and mercy to those he chooses. And then turn around in chapter 10 and say, but all of us have a free choice. My head starts to explode. But it doesn't have to make sense to me. And then Paul begins in chapter 11 and he goes through this amazing talk of how how Israel hasn't been rejected. There's still a remnant. Israel's temporary rejection is purposeful to bring we Gentiles in to the people of God. And through that, he is going to make all people jealous. And in the end, it will work out just as he intended. Do you ever wonder if your life is going to work out? You ever been, maybe you're at one of those spots where you say, "Ah, there's not a good end here, God. Uh, Helen Rosevere was a missionary for many, many years in Sierra, Zaire, rather, Africa. And and she wrote a book and shared some of her experiences. And one of them that I, I don't think I'll ever forget, she shared a story. Early on, she was a medical doctor. She set up a clinic in which she treated some of the poorest of the poor in the world. And on one particular occasion, she spent nearly an entire evening with the mother giving birth. And the mother didn't make it. The mother had a two-year-old who was now entirely distraught over the loss of her mother, and Helen had a premature baby. 
in a time where they didn't have electricity, let alone incubators. The only way to keep babies warm was to fill a, a water bottle up with warm water, put the baby on top of it, and wrap blankets around it. And so she asked the nurse to go fill the water bottle up, and the nurse came with this incredibly distraught look on her face and said, I- I'm sorry, the hot water bottle burst. She said, well, uh, stoke the fire and try and get the baby as close as you can without uh, causing it harm. And they made it through the evening. And that morning, Helen went, there was an orphanage, and she would have breakfast every morning with the orphanage, and she would pray with the kids, and she just shared about the premature baby and the two-year-old who had lost its mother. And one of the 10-year-old girls with a faith only children has said, well, let's pray. God, please send a water bottle and you have to do it today because tomorrow the baby will be dead. And when you send the water bottle, why not send a dolly for the little girl? Helen didn't really want to tamper the girl's faith, but she had been in Africa for four years and had yet to receive a single care package from back home. There was no way this could work out. She went about her day, and after lunch, she went back to her house, and sitting on her porch was a 22-pound care package. She called the kids over, and they began to open it, and there were colorful outfits for the orphans. There were bandages for the lepers. And there, in the middle of the package, was a hot water bottle. The little girl who had prayed said, well, let's find the dolly. God certainly wouldn't have forgotten a dolly. And sure enough, at the very bottom was a dolly. In order for the hot water bottle to show up the day it did, five months earlier, her Sunday school class back in England decided that they should send a hot water bottle to a missionary living on the equator. How does that work? Only one way. God orchestrates his ways and his judgments for our good. But Paul moves from this incredible expression of wonder and awe to remind us just how limited we are. In verse 34, he's actually going to answer a set of three questions, and I think they match well those first three attributes. He's going to say, who has the mind of the Lord? Who has knowledge? Who who is his counselor? Who has wisdom? Who has the, the money that you can ingratiate God yourself? Who has the wealth? They're actually quotes from the Old Testament. And one of the things that just boggles my mind about the Apostle Paul is how he can't seemingly go a paragraph in his writing without quoting or alluding to something in the Old Testament. And as I was studying this week, I I was struck by this thought. How long do I go before I bring up a quote or an allusion to Scripture? Think about your week last week. Is every paragraph littered with quotes and allusions to God's word, or do you save them for Sunday? Paul's writing was so filled, and I don't think Paul sat down, and okay, now I need to go back to the Old Testament. I'm going to study. I'm going to find this point, this quote. I think they just came because Paul had dedicated his life and had made Scripture so much a part of his life that he couldn't talk without referencing the Old Testament. And if you notice their footnotes, if you have in your Bible, if you click on it, you'll notice the first one comes from Isaiah chapter 40. And Isaiah chapter 40 is one of the most beautiful chapters in the entire book. The first 39 chapters to a large part, Isaiah develops that 
Babylon under Nebuchadnezzar is going to come and destroy Israel and take them captive and all of Jerusalem, the temple and everything will be destroyed. And as the Israelites begin to look at Babylon, what hope do we have? And in chapter 40, Isaiah begins, see the sovereign Lord comes with power and his arms rule for him. See his reward is with him and his recompense accomplishes, accompanies him. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and he carries them close to his heart and he gently leads those that are young. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? Or with the breath of his hand marked off the heavens. Who has held the dust of the earth in a basket or weighed the mountains on the scales and the hills in a balance. And here's our quote. Who has understood the mind of the Lord or instructed him as a counselor. I think for most of us, the idea of a counselor is something that you need when you're going through life's hardships, somebody you go to when you're discouraged, depressed, suffering badly. It's not what the word counselor here speaks of. If you can imagine, Nebuchadnezzar is a dictator, a monarch. His word is law, but the only way a king can possibly make wise decisions is to gather information. And so he has counselors. He has somebody who tells him the state of his army, tells him the state of the enemy's army, tells him the state of their, their crops, the construction, the, the economics of the nation. He has to have counselors because one man can't possibly know everything. We don't have a king. We have a president. But most mornings, the president begins with a briefing of his cabinet. And there's a secretary of defense. There's a secretary of the economy. There's a secretary of all these people. And before the day begins, the CIA explains all of the threats they're aware of. The the secretary of defense shares the state and readiness of the military, the economic advisors. And in order for the president to make the decisions he needs, he has to get counsel. How many counselors does God need? None. He has no counselors because he needs none. Because he knows everything. And Paul's point, Isaiah's point, is that God is beyond any need from us. But a second question, if you go down and you click on it, you'll notice it takes us back to Job. And and I feel like every other Sunday we're back in the story of Job. And I have grown to absolutely love the story of Job because it's a story of a man who everything falls apart. A man who is as righteous a man as there is on planet Earth. Now that's a pretty amazing statement. Made by God, not by me. And yet he loses everything. And his friends come along and say, Job, you're the problem. It's clear that if you were obeying God, this wouldn't be happening to you. And Job cries out, God, let me have an opportunity to defend myself. Let me sit in front of you and explain how I'm doing well. And in chapter 38, God shows up. And he says, before you say a thing, Job, I have a few questions for you. And it takes him through the 60, 70 different questions as as Job has a chance to see the very foundations of the world and 
God says, where were you when I made the planet Earth? Where were you when I formed the, the very structures, the planets? And then he takes him to these two grand beasts. We don't really know for certain what the beasts are. The first one is called a behemoth. It was the largest of all and anima, land creatures. But then he takes him to the Leviathan. If you go back to the Psalms, you'll find that the Leviathan was a sea monster. A horrifying monster. An unimaginable monster. And God begins to ask questions about Leviathan. And in verse 8, he says, If you lay a hand on him, you will remember the struggle and never do it again. Go pet Leviathan sometime and tell me about it. Any hope of subduing him is just pure idiocy. The mere sight of him is overpowering. No one is fierce enough to rouse him save his maker. If you are terrified of Leviathan, how terrified ought you to be in my presence? Who has given to me that I should repay him? God's point is that just as you are terrified of these sea monsters, remember I made them. No one will ever do enough good to ingratiate themselves to me. God owes us nothing. I, I, I like the way Jeremiah summarizes it in verse, chapter 9, verse 23 and 24. He says, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this that he understands and knows me. That I am the Lord who practices, and this is, I think, my favorite Hebrew word, chesed, a steadfast, ever-enduring love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. Paul wants us to understand how much greater God is than us. And then very quickly, he goes in verse 36, and we don't have time this morning. We're not going to take the time, but he throws out these three great prepositions. All things are from God. Imagine a circle. God is the circle, and everything comes out of God. Doesn't matter how many trillions of light years away. It doesn't matter how close to you. Everything is from God. And oh, by the way, everything is through God. God channels exactly what you need in your life today. And ultimately, he is always the goal. All things are from God. All things come through God. And ultimately, all things return to God. And thus, the only thing we can do, the only thing we should do, is fall on our face and give him glory. I really hope this Thanksgiving weekend that you find some time to praise the one who came to give you life and the one who is promised an eternity in his presence. Not because you've earned it, but because of his great chesed, his steadfast love that never leaves us. To him be glory forever. And then Paul throws a word that I don't want you to run past too fast. Amen isn't simply something that's said at the end of a prayer. 
It's literally, so be it. And I am convinced he throws that in there because we are now at the point of decision. Can you honestly say, amen? Father, I I thank you for the chance this week to give thanks for the bounty of your provisions to us. But I thank you most of all for Jesus. I thank you for his incredible gift to us on the cross. I I thank you for the, the majesty and the might of your name your riches, your wisdom, your knowledge, your judgments, your ways. And God, it is my prayer that each of us this morning would simply stop and pause and give you glory for you and you alone deserve it. And it is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.